listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books Podcast, and I'm your host, Natalie Freeman. Today, we're so excited to welcome Claire Boyles to read from her new book, Sight Fidelity. And after that, she will be in conversation with Zach Hug. Before I introduce them, I wanted to remind you that Skylight Books is open for in-store browsing from 11 to 7 on weekdays and 10 to 8 on weekends. We ask that you continue to be kind and respectful to our booksellers and your fellow shoppers when you visit us. We are also offering online ordering through our beautiful newly designed website, which you can find at www.skylightbooks.com. And now to introduce you to the wonderful humans whose conversation you're about to enjoy, Claire Boyles is a writer, teacher, and former sustainable farmer. She received her MFA in creative writing from Colorado State University. Her fiction has appeared in Boulevard and the Kenyan Review, and she lives in Loveland, Colorado. She'll be in conversation with her brother, Zach Hug a television writer, playwright, and essayist with a BFA in theater from NYU and an MFA in creative writing from the University of British Columbia. Zach spent many years as a digital media executive for Bravo, The View, and ABC Family before becoming a TV writer on Drop Dead Diva and Shadowhunters. Most recently, he's written several movies of the week for Hallmark, including Road to Christmas and the Christmas and Evergreen series. His plays have been produced by the New York Fringe Festival and the Williamstown Theater Festival Workshop. Zach has also written the award-winning web series, These People, and the Outfest short, Lazy Sunday, with collaborator Jim Rash. He lives in Los Angeles with his partner, Dan, and an old man dog named Pickles. Welcome, Claire and Zach. We're so excited to have you. Thank you so much for having us on. Thanks. I, this is great. I think this is our first siblings podcast, which we are so excited about. Hopefully we can get some more siblings on. And I'm so excited to hear a little bit about site fidelity. Claire, do you want to read us something? Sure. I'm going to read from the first story in the collection, which is called Ledgers. And I'm going to start somewhere in the middle, but I I don't think you need to know anything, any kind of background to follow. (laughs) Perfect. The sage grouse had lived on the ranch all along. Pop just hadn't known, none of us had, that these ones were threatened especially much. The first time I saw them, we were out pre-dawn, fixing the same fence I'd seen Henson cut. The morning was overcast, sprinkling rain. The sun rose but invisibly behind the cloud cover, light fading in by degrees rather than streaming up in oranges and pinks from behind the east ridge. I heard their calls like bubbles popping, staccato air sac percussions, saw the males strutting, virile. They were so full of themselves, so full of life. I knew I was witnessing something important and rare. I felt then for the first time, the mix of emotions that fragile species have always evoked in me, precious awe, a preemptive sadness of loss, anger and indignation at humanity's deep apathy, surges of what must be a sort of maternal protectiveness. 
We'll come back tomorrow, Pop said, and camp out here while we get a fence around this meadow. If we can keep it out of grazing, at least in the spring, we can help save these birds all on our own. We don't need to tell anyone they're here, don't need a government handout to do the right thing. We just need to take care of our own. We did care for them. We'd camp there for a week every year, counting the high males and females, recording the numbers of viewable copulations, not many, evidence of predator interference, coyote, hawk, owl, golden eagle. Pop would write it all down in his ledger. It's not a diary, he'd say gruffly, tussling my hair when I'd tease him. It's a ledger. Diaries are for feelings, and I'm not keeping track of my feelings. I'm keeping track of the facts. Pop kept neat and orderly notes of daily events in a series of 99-cent black-and-white composition notebooks he'd pick up every year with my school supplies. He was almost famous for the way he could tell you he sold only 152 head of cattle in 1993, or that the Blue Mesa Dam generates 60,000 kilowatts of energy every year while the Crystal Dam only produces 28,000. These days, quantifiers are slippery for Pop and he drops them easily. He can't get his numbers straight at all. It's not a difference in his thinking, just his speech, but it changes everything about how people see him, even how I see him, which makes me ashamed of myself. Pop's ledgers are how I learned the difference between practical thinking and emotional thinking, the way lots of people who love one way of seeing things have contempt or maybe fear for the other. He used to mark my growth on the kitchen door jam every six months, copy it into his ledger. If I did that now to him, I'm afraid I'd find he was shrinking, that the marks would run gravity fed in the wrong direction. Pop writes grocery lists using his left hand since everything that used to be dominant in him is broken. It's like he's in kindergarten, the poor spelling, the shaky, uneven handwriting. Pop wants bananas, grape nuts, and orange juice. He writes, bababas, surl, ju. There are boxes and boxes full of Pop's ledgers in the detached garage of the old Victorian we bought in downtown Gunnison. His notes from the lek over the past three seasons document a 55% drop in the high male population on our land. He never mentioned it before his stroke, and now he won't talk about it at all. Pop, I said dropping the open ledgers on the pinewood table he built the first winter I was away at college. What happened? Pop looked at the ledgers and then at me, surprised, his face tensed, lined. He was my favorite storyteller. Now he's barely interested in simple conversation. Don't know, he said, shrugging his left shoulder. I tried again. I don't know how much I'm supposed to adjust to this new, more limited Pop, how far I should allow him to recede. Why so few birds? Is something wrong with the lek? Pop was examining his pill bottle, counting his purple morphine pearls, trying to pry the lid off with the thumb of his one working hand. He wasn't listening, or he was trying to look like he wasn't listening. Pop, I said. He shrugged again, then lifted his left hand into the air, annoyed. Don't know. Conversations are hard for Pop, but they're hard work for me too. So much relentless effort to connect, to relate, to love and to feel loved by him. I wanted to yell, to grab his shoulders and shake the news out of him, or at least shake him into being interested in me, in the sage grouse, in anything, but I can't do that. He's my Pop and I love him. And what good would it do exactly? Fine, I said, boring conversation anyway. Pop glared at me, hummed a few bars of the Star Wars theme, and ran over my foot with his electric wheelchair as he rolled toward the bathroom. Oh, man. It, it, <laughs> it's so, it, I mean, that story, I have a lot of questions. Um, first of all, I, I mean, I feel like I know the answer to this question already, but like the sage grouse is not gonna be okay, are they? Like we're gonna lose them as a species or are they, like is there hope for them in any way? 
Um, you know, my rational, logical, based on all available evidence self thinks probably not. Sure. But if the sage grouse are not going to be okay, like neither are we as humans. Right. And like not, I don't even mean existentially, although that is also true. I mean, it's a signal of the damage that we are doing to ecosystems and how much damage we are willing to do to the ecosystems that support the sage grouse, but also support us. Um, so I don't, it would be hard to come back from it if we let those sage grouse go. And my heart, like I like to live in hope. So sure. my heart says we, it's not too late and we should keep doing what we have to do to try to save them. Um, because that's like a step, it's like a little tap on the brakes of climate disaster, saving the sage grouse, which would be right. like a way that we could save ourselves, I guess. It's, it, I mean, it is the whole book, every story you sort of finish it going, well, I hope everyone's gonna be okay. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny because 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 listening to you read it right now uh, was the was the sort of first time that I really seen dad not not I mean it's the dad in the in the sort of second half of it where that was his grocery list and and you know that his main his main form of his his big word was dunno um, and he did run over our feet all the time with his wheelchair like that part of dad is so clear and so specifically dad but. The, the imagining of dad in the field with a ledger pre-stroke makes no sense to me at all. But it does remind me of um, Matt, your husband. Like it reminds me of, of, of other people. And I guess, I, I think that that's actually sort of, because I, I have the same experience writing dad where he's a very clear character, but everyone else in, in this book feels so much like a, like a mashup to me. Like, how does it feel for you to sort of, uh, I guess, translate everyone into, into these characters? Like how, what was your process in terms of, of doing that, I guess, was my question. I mean, I feel like I started with, with dad, with pop, you know, and who I, who I knew him to be and the pieces of my relationship to him that I was thinking about at the time, what it meant to be raised by him specifically and the ways that I learned to see myself through his eyes, which I think is fairly common for children um, and, and what that meant for me as an adult. Sure. Uh, but it didn't, you know, Pop wasn't a rancher. Our, our actual Pop was not a rancher. He worked road construction and then he was disabled by first by a car accident and then by a stroke. So, um, so yeah, the ledgers, I, I kind of, I did, it's like all the people I know and especially the men when I write male characters, I mean, really it's, it's dad, it's, it's you sometimes, it's my husband, Matt, it's maybe my son, it's, you know, I, I, it's kind of a mashup of, of people I know. Uh, our fun fact, I don't know if you know this, but our grandpa hug also kept ledgers. Um, 
like oh, the that's written books and I, I have one of them from his like college days and his engineering classes where he's just like writing stuff down about how maybe how to build roads I don't know I can't even really decipher it but uh, I think it's just really that's just an interesting thing to do and they're all the one Matt keeps and the one uh, grandpa keeps and then I found a ledger of a ditch writer an irrigation ditch writer um, in the Colorado water archive at the CSU library which is just like again just today I planted three oak trees. Today I ran this many feet of water. Today the catalpa bloomed for the first time. I and mean, this is very much facts, but it does tell its own story. Yeah. I think. Anyway, mis- mashing it all together. That's why I wanted to talk to you, right? Because I think it's interesting as siblings, all our shared experiences of real life and how that translates into fiction. And like what I see the limits of shared experience and shared memory, like what I remember of the people and what I know of the people or what I've created of the people, real people in our lives in fiction and how you see that also knowing the same real people. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think that was the thing is that, uh, you know, I, I read it as like as, as as nonfiction in a weird way, but not in that any of the stories made any, like I don't, I didn't remember any of these things happening because they're all fiction except it was all in the same world that I live in or, or, or was raised in. And that was, I mean, I was fascinated by that and also sort of really interested in like, well, who's, who was she thinking of when she wrote this? Cause there's that guy um, in, in the, the flood stories one who's like the brother. And I was like that, no, like I knew that wasn't me because no, what a jerk, but also, <laughs> you, mean what, what, the, you mean the convict the former police officer yeah that wasn't you <laughs> no sure but 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 there's a part of you there's a part of you I think that when you read your family you sort of wonder like oh are, are, are they telling you know are they are they going to tell all my secrets and I and so many people say that to me it's like well if you're writing about family which we both that's sort of what we both write about like, well, you know, don't tell any family secrets. And all I could think to myself is none of you are that interesting. I'm not that interesting. So um, that was really fascinating to me. And then, I, you know, I said this to you recently that the, the three sisters that sort of we follow through, through all of the short stories in a lot of ways, Ruth and Mano and uh, Sister Agnes Mary, are based on uh, Grandma Hyman and her sister and oh, her sisters, Mano and uh, a, a Catholic nun named Sister Ethel Mary. And, you know, I I read them not, I read them as, as all kinds of different women in our family that, you know, there's the scene where they're, they're all in church and sort of taunting each other to giggle. And I read that as you and me and Maggie, our sister. <laughs> in a lot of ways, right? And I, like, like that was the weirdest part to me was there's such a comment on what it means to be a sibling in this and that, and, I, and, and that you see them very clearly in these scenes, but it's such a mashup of, of everyone I've met in my entire family to me. And, and then people that you've told me about, like the ditch writer and the, the various people sort of in your life. Um, I mean, did, did when you were writing it, were you imagining grandma and and her sister, or were you sort of just pulling from all kinds of other stuff? In my head, they all look like they, you know, Ruth looks like Granny Ruth, sure, and sure, Mano sure. looks like Mano, 
and Sister Agnes Mary. I think she looks more like uh, Sister Magdalena than uh, Sister how Catholic we were. Yeah, uh, but I, you know, I, I've said this a lot, actually, just that there were such limits to what I think we could know about them as real women because they were our grandmother and our great aunts and we were young. Um, you know, we were we were really young adults when they when granny passed anyway. Um, so I think there were just limits to what I felt I knew about them, but then I'd see these pictures of them just partying, you know, <laughs> just yeah. I mean, just having a ball, like, and there's there's almost never men in any of those photos. It's just a bunch of women sitting around a table or sitting out on a patio or, um, you know, with drinks and coffee and like Lorna Dunes, right? Like, it's like, it's like, I can smell that kitchen and it just, they're like my age. And so many of those photos. And I realized I know nothing about, I knew nothing. I still don't about what they were really like as human beings while they were in these different phases of their lives. And so it was, I think, filling in those gaps, I had to sort of draw from what, what I knew it is to be a middle-aged woman and what I saw, you know, our aunts go through and our mother go through, you know, different ways of, of being. And it was so fun to invent them in that way and to turn them into the women I needed them to be for my stories. Um, oh, sure. It's like the beauty of fiction, you know, that that I got to turn them into someone. I mean, I already loved them, but I got to fictionalize them into people I also loved, yeah. you know, and it felt it was fun. It was fun to yeah. write. It's what's also you turn dials like that's what that was what was interesting about it was that, you know, energetically, I, I absolutely could smell the kitchen the whole time. And, and, and you're just saying Lorna Dunes coffee um and it, and like i understood like i i had the sense memory of being in that kitchen and i think you paint those things very well for readers but like i i think that that's one of the sort of tricks about not so much basing but but using your own experience is that you start to take experiences or people in your life and turn up certain dials like i'm going to take this experience and make it much worse um and i think that that you know, the, the, that's one of the hardest parts I think about um, fictionalizing people who were in your life in some ways. But uh, I agree that, you know, I, I was watching, uh, at one point I felt like I was watching mom and her sisters and, and, and all of that. And I, the thing that you were saying about that, that they are all these photographs of women at tables drinking, there, it's so much fun to sort of go back through I was realizing that I never knew grandma with 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 a man in her life. And, and I never even considered, like she was a single woman my whole life. And it never occurred to me until I was in my twenties when I started dating that, oh, she had children. And then, she, you know, and, and it was the 70s or this, you know, she raised children by herself in the sixties and seventies. And then sort of to sort of have that, um, how women existed in that time period, particularly where we grew up. Um, how does how does then man camp fit into the collection of stories? Because the women are so central, and then you know the middle. There's this story 
of these two dudes that talk about it just because I because I I'm fascinated by how that came about yeah I mean I I definitely wanted to look at all of this through like a feminist lens and the most inclusive possible feminist lens which I think increasingly for me rejects like gender binaries but I'm new in my thinking about that. So I, you know, I, but I do, because we were raised in such a gendered world. I mean, such a world of Catholic patriarchy and um, gender roles that were so, I mean, I just feel like it was beat into us almost that like women take care of things and men provide. (laughs) And um, there are three stories in the collection that have male narrators Um, and man camp is, is one of them. I think, I think what I wanted to show in man camp, the character Joe is working, he's left his home um, and his wife is in assisted living uh, after an accident. And he takes a job states away up in the Bakken to in the oil fields to pay for her care. Um, And to me in that story, it was sort of Joe, it was exploring what it would mean to be caught in that binary as a man who had, you know, those same, I just think it's like a psychic wound for Joe, right? That he, he leaves, he knows he's, in my mind, Joe would be better off. And I hope that it's clear in the story, like if he knew better how to care for the to the things he loved, which is really, I think, very consistent with the rest of the collection, yeah. which is kind of all about what does it mean to care for not just the people that you love in your own family, but also your community, and then also the world as a whole and the ecology of your life and the, eco- the global climate catastrophe. I really think it's only gonna be solved or even remediated at this point by a different relationship to care. Sure. All sorts of levels. And so I think, I think I, you know, I, I didn't want it to be a book where those gender roles persisted. And I think if you only center women, that almost perpetuates, that would almost have perpetuated what I was trying to get away from. I think we're all trapped in this um, sort of patriarchal view of the world that leads us to just degrade our environment over and over and over again. And that we could change, we could change that still to some degree. Sure. Again, that bleeding heart hope for the climate. <laughs> and, well, you know. but, I, but, I, but I think you also, I think what was really interesting, and I, I, I said this to a friend of the day, is that it's it's all characters that I remember from from knowing from the Midwest that that you know where we grew up until until we were in our you know mid-childhood and then we moved to the West and it, you've transplanted a lot of the West and and the idea that 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 Grandma Hyman would give birth next to a dinosaur in a in a ghost town is amazing and and like like what a what a fantastic way to sort of put those two things together. But I think then having grown up in the West, the way that we did, I think one of the things that is you know, kind of perpetually taught to you over and over is that this is a place that you go to to take over. Do you mean there was such a uh, the West needed to be tamed, and even in 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 you know grade school in the eighties, there was still such a a narrative that was driven by 
uh, go on adventures and take these things and <laughs> ruin it. Um, <laughs> in your, in sort of how you write about the West, where is that? Has do you feel like that's changed? Like, does it still feel very much like go take all these resources and and use them, or or is there a much different, you know, relationship to it now as to what's being taught? Oh, I think it's very much the same now. I mean, I think the oil and gas boom um, and extraction industries, I think are absolute, like, I think the the West, at least here in Colorado, you know, really the reliance on mining and coal, we're not gonna let coal go, you know, and even agriculture um, is a really, can be really extractive and really damaging, you know, ecologically. And I think those mindsets are, incredibly present in the modern West and they need to be counteracted. And not that there's not any resistance to them, there absolutely is. And I think there probably always was. It's just, um, there's also a acceptance of them. I think, I think, you know, generally we've come to accept that like a certain number of fish kills are the price of our lives here in the West, you know, or anywhere in the world really that we can't live any other way as humans than, than tolerating those things. And I think that has to be, we have to question that, you know, that's what I hope that site fidelity is doing is, is, you know, I'm trying to write against that idea, but I do think like extractive mindsets and extractive industries are all wrapped up in traditional ideas of gender roles and patriarchy and, um, you know, white, the white settlement and, you know, all those really things that we were taught to be like, yes, this is the right way to live. And then it's, it's absolutely not, you know, <laughs> going to the world and go, wait a minute. Yeah. Um, got it. So who, you know, I know that also, because all the stories do tie together. Are there any that I could, there's moments where part of the fun of the book is finding a character later. Do you mean like you're, you're sort of reading along and then all of a sudden um, a character who you met when they were a child is suddenly a grown adult and living a life that you're sort of, oh boy, this this, this poor person. Are, is there anyone that does not? Are there any stories that don't fit into the larger world of it? Or do they all? Um, kind of the first ledgers doesn't really fit. There's no shared characters in any of the other stories for ledgers. Um, I don't think man camp or chickens. I think those are the three that just sort of like, I think they fit thematically and sure. they definitely they, fit in the absolutely. world. Yeah. But there's, and then there's sort of two sets of linked stories. The, the sisters that we've talked about, Ruth, um, Mano and sister Agnes Mary. And then there's this other group of stories that center around the sugar mill yeah. and, and those characters where they're kind of all tied by this betrayal of responsibility by this by the man who he's he's in the stories but he he's not he's sort of a he's in the background of the story but he has affected their lives and that i think what's interesting with that is that where, where ruth and mano and, and sister agnes mary are it's really based around not necessarily autobiography, but around family in some way, and these characters that um, are very, uh, I think, you know, precious to you in some way. It feels like the other ones are based more on place about where you live. You know, it feels very much like Loveland, and it feels, you know, like there's all these sort of towns or this these groups of neighbors in this place. Can you can you talk a little bit about what that research 
system? Because I know that there's a sugar mill there. And did that, like that molasses thing, did that happen? And that was yeah. a thing. And that's a, like, talk a little bit about this because it, it's all kind of, it feels like this is something someone invented for a short story, but it turns out it's all real stuff. Not all of it. I mean, you know, I invented things around the real pieces of it, but I am often very inspired by real events. And I have in the last few years become really convinced that local history and local issues, like where do we get our water? How do we build our build our roads? What, how does our water treatment plant operate are really an important way to engage with climate and to engage with, you know, to pull it down to something that feels manageable mm -hmm. um, and also a, a focus of examination. Why do we allow our water treatment plants to work this way? Why do we, you know, what is the, eventual end game of the fact that in Colorado we've sold the rights to use water as private property. Um, so I think telling stories of you know families and women that are that are encountering that in their own communities is it's important to me and so I it, it seemed that I should probably cite some of that some of that storytelling in the community that I am part of partly because I know the issues here and partly because, because that's really what the collection, I hope, you know, that's the whole metaphor of site fidelity that you are tied to the place that you live and your health and well being is tied to the health and well being of the land and the water and the resources that you rely on in the places that you live. Wow. Yeah. That tracks. Um, is there anything that you're curious about my reading of it that, uh, We've not, I you know, it was funny because because what, what I kept thinking was like, I kept looking, I kept waiting for mom. And the only time I really found her was in, you described this woman getting out of the car and you said she's got honey hair and the way that you described it when I was like, oh, it's mom. There's mom, you guys. Um, I got really excited, but, but it, there's pieces of, of all of us kind of all over it, but um, I don't know, what did you, what that's, sorry. I think, no, that's okay. I think it's funny because you told me that the other day that like, oh, I just love that description of mom. And the whole time I was thinking of Aunt Marcia. His <laughs> name is actually Marcia. And like, that's what I was describing. Like, and so I just think it, I, I mean, I think that's the piece that I think is fascinating having you as a writer who knows how character is constructed, looking at the ways I've constructed these characters who you also know in real life, but who are not the versions of the people in real life. So I just, I like, I just, I thought it would be, you know, that's why we're here doing this podcast. I thought it'd be fun to talk about like, where did you, like maybe with pop, like where did that, you know, you've talked about what rung true and what you recognize, but were there moments where you were like, uh, no, that's not. No, with him, you know, I think he's, I think with, with dad, it's, you know, dad was someone who, who, prior to this, the stroke was, had a different personality, but the, the one on the other side of the stroke, sort of the, in the second half of his life, he really lived um, very consciously. Like he was very mindful about who he was. And, you know, he, he was very dedicated to sort of flourishing a sense of humor in that period of his life. And, and so that piece of dad, I mean, and, and, the, and the words choices that he, had were pretty limited and you you nail all those very very clearly um every I think that was the thing it's like it's very hard to to imagine anyone else in that character whereas there were times where I'd be reading about 
um, Ruth and Mano and, and sister and, and, and get a little bit uh, off track. Like I saw Aunt Barb in there at one point, like there was a lot of, um, and again, like none of it is specific. It's just, there's these very tender little memories that we all have. Like there's the line where um, you're talking about, I think Ruth at the end of her life um, takes the, 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 the woman's face in her hands and says, uh, I know I love you, but I can't remember who you are, which, which Mano said to me at a, at a reunion. And it was this, and it like, it, it didn't matter. Like it was so sweet and kind of her to sort of have that, ex you know, to just be giving of that expression and to sort of then give that to sort of grandma, like all of those details energetically, all felt exactly the same to me. Like I, it, it is again, it's you smell the coffee and uh, you just want to play euchre in the kitchen for peanut, <laughs> you know, peanut M&Ms. Um, and, and all of those things, I think it's, it's one of the things in, 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 in writing a story where you're drawing from family. I, I experienced a lot of this with, with Hallmark, right? That you, you are, you are giving a gift to your family in some way, but you are also, making it so that it is something everyone can feel on some level. You're trying to say, this is how it felt to be close to these particular people, but uh, here's the best I can translate that. And to be able to sort of do that for, for, for someone is, you really don't, you don't notice it until you, until the, the product is in the world, like your home, hoping it translates. <laughs> is this sad? Is this funny? It was funny to me, but now it's deeply sad to someone else. And I think I'm, I'm very curious that now that the book is out for, you know, 24 hours at this time that we're recording this, that, you know, I've had friends texting me saying, wait, did your grandmother actually give birth by a dinosaur? And I was like, no, she did not. And which, which of course not, but, but at the same time, that place exists. That is perfectly plausible that that would happen there. I kind of believe Grandma would do it. Um, also, I, I keep saying to my I, when I when I read that story, I was like, I don't. I will never understand what it is like to give birth, but I understood the physical sensation as you described it in a way that I was like, oh. <laughs> Oh, got it. Do you know what I mean? Like it didn't, not even the painful part of it, but just what a weird feeling it is to be giving and like what the body does and how it is only partially in your control. And the other part of it is just biology. I was like, uh-huh, I've learned a lot here today. Um, <laughs> it's, it's an instructional birthing model, really. <laughs> That's a manual. You find yourself in a ghost town. If you find yourself in a ghost town yeah. about birth, here's how it uh, will feel. In, 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 is that Gabs, Nevada? Is that where that is? Is that? Yeah, I mean, it's outside of Gabs. And like, I, I sort of, the distances are much wider between Berlin and the Ichthyosaur Park and Gabs than I think the story really makes it seem, but it's all in that area of Nevada. Yeah. I'm, I will say, uh, I mean, our, our grandmother, Ruth, and our grandfather, Dell, um, Dell did actually, he was a long haul truck driver. They never lived in Nevada and he didn't work in a mine, but he was a long haul truck driver and he did leave her. And, um, you know, there's some speculation about how many families Dell actually had. And I don't think we really know. Um, and I think I've been, I mean, I think that is the one thing about writing about family that 
I've tried to be really careful of, you know, Granny and Mano have passed. There's no way to know how they would uh, judge my retelling. Um, But we do have our father's sisters, (laughs) Uh, Aunt Marcia and Aunt Kathy and Aunt Sue. And I do wonder, I guess I, my hope is that, that they will feel that I've respected that story of their lives, the pieces of it I know. Um, and that, you know, but I, I guess that, you know, as I was writing it, that, that, and even now that the book is out in the world and people are reading it, that looms a little heavy until I, till I have a drink with those ladies and they tell me exactly what they think of it, because I'm sure they will. Um, sure, yeah. I think the, the, the fear is that when you're writing, when you're incorporating true pieces of people's lives, even if they're your family's lives, but they're not yours, that you're, that that is a, a responsibility you oh, know, absolutely. and a, yeah. a trust that you're well, making. Yeah. You know? I, I mean, I think, and to sort of kind of, I think cap off here, I, I, I would just say that I also was, you know, present for a lot of the writing of this book and, and, and seeing some of the stories kind of build over time with this. I, I think what a lot of people may not, may not know about the book that I think uh, also recommends it is that you also wrote this while dad was actively dying. And I think that there's something incredibly um, moving about the way that the work came to it, came to, uh, fruition at that same time. Do you know what I mean? That that this is there is so much an ode, I think, to the women that surrounded Dad's life in a way that uh, if if I there's no way I could describe it to someone other than by saying, here here's a book that will tell you emotionally without the details of the actual stories. But if you would like to feel you know wrapped up in the sort of love that that my dad's family had around itself this is very much what it was and so that i mean that what a gift i mean like well done i'm i'm i am deeply proud of you in a way that i, I wish i could write uh as half as beautifully as you do so uh, stop it. you do write just as beautiful i mean half. you do write half yeah, yeah. we're not uh, gonna have this fight on a podcast <laughs> but you're also a very good writer zach um thank you so much i think we're out of time but thank you so much for agreeing to uh, help me sell my book. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here, both of you. That was such a fun conversation to listen to. And now I can't wait to get my hands on a copy of Site Fidelity for all the little insights. It's such a fun little companion piece for when you do read the book to get a little bit of fun familial backstory there. Do either of you have anything else you wanted to uh, share with us about upcoming events or anything coming up that you want to plug? Uh, I, I will say that Claire and I uh, did write some Hallmark movies together um, that we can't tell you which ones they are yet, but oh. we did. Um, and you probably will see them this year, I would assume. So the we'll, anticipation. We'll, we'll bring back through and let you know what those are. Amazing. <laughs> Love that so much. Thank you again to Claire for sharing Site Fidelity with us. And Zach, thank you so much for the fun sibling conversation. Today's guests, once again, were Claire Boyles and Zach Hug. You can order Claire's new book, Site Fidelity, at www.skylightbooks.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. 
Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.